Today, a hope that people younger than me will learn what I did not until I was much older than I should have been. Welcome to Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So I recently celebrated my 60th birthday, Is if uh, celebration is the right word to use for that. I'm not sure. Uh, it's such an odd age to turn. Uh, somebody gave me a birthday card that on the inside said, it's strange to be the same age as old people. Uh, and so it is. It's really strange. But uh, there are a lot of things about my ministry and the way I think about discipleship and how to apply our Christianity that are just not the same as they were when I was 20. Uh, and I say that because I was actively preaching every week in a church that I had sort of started. I mean, I did start it, but it was sort of a church uh, when I was 20 years old. So, I, I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years in the sense of pastoring or leading a Christian organization. I'm the president at Criswell College. So, you know, that's a long time, and we wouldn't expect someone to be flat-footed in that uh, kind of a, you know, I mean, we're Christians, so we should be growing, and that's happened. And what brought some of the growth in my life and some of the changes in my life are simply anomalies, things that I've observed over the years that did not fit the narrative that was being given to me uh, the rest of my life. And, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. The narrative being given to me just means I live in a culture. I'm surrounded by people that I care about, that I trust, and we learn from each other, and we grow with each other, and we talk about some things, and we don't talk about other things. And in that context of growing up and as an adult, maturing even further, um, over time, a few anomalies made me realize that I had not taken into account a lot of facts that I should have known about. Not, not just somebody should have told me, but I mean, I should have made myself aware of them. And surely somebody should have shaken me a little bit and said, you mean you don't know what this or that is? And those anomalies are, are something that I, as I look back on them now, I want, in this conversation, to relate to you in a way to say, let's be careful how we respond uh, when we're being exposed to these ideas that sometimes make us a little uncomfortable, and they made me a little uncomfortable. I'm not even against being the uncomfortable person. Uh, I just want... Well, so here's, here's what provokes the discussion today in particular. Uh, there was a recent executive, well, it's not an executive order. There was a recent warning given to state agencies in Texas from the governor's office. I'll say it that way. I, I don't really know who the direct source of this is, so I'll just leave it at that. The Texas Tribune talks about this, and 
Daisy, our producer, can link to this uh, on the website so that you can look at it. Uh, if you get the podcast somewhere else, I know you have to go to the website to get it, barrycreamer.com, and then look up this episode, find this episode, and you can get the link there to the Texas Tribune article. It's from February 7th uh, of 2023. Uh, and you know what it says is this. Here, I'll read you a quotation from that article. Governor Greg Abbott's office is warning state agency and public university leaders this week that the use of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, policies that support groups who've been historically underrepresented or discriminated against, is illegal in hiring. It's not an executive order. It's an interpretation. It, it, it is, they call it a warning in the article. That's a fair statement of it because you don't send a letter like this neutrally. You send it out to say, stop doing that. But it doesn't say stop doing it. It just gives a warning that it's illegal, <laughs> which which sounds a lot like you should stop doing this. So that's the impression I get from it. So here's here's a ruling coming out in Texas that says we don't want you to consider diversity when you're hiring your employees. Now, and uh, and uh, believe I get it. I I get the nuances of this discussion. I'm in the middle of it in a lot of contexts, so I'm not saying that to be overly defensive, but to say to you, I know we could immediately stop and say, well, there's a good reason for that, and there are, and there's also a bad reason for it, and there and there is. I mean, so there, I get that. I don't want to have that debate right now. I just want to make this little point. Not only is that happening in Texas. And when I say little point, I mean, I really want to get to something a a little less nuanced and argumentative uh, to make the point that I want to make today. And and I'm going to say it that way, the point I want to make today, because I'm 60, and on at least one occasion, I should be able to play the 60 Trump card, not the politician, the 60 card on the table and say, I'm 60. Can't I just say what I want to say today? And so I'm just going to say what I want to say today. And I don't think it's all that, I, it's not all that controversial. What, what I'm going to say is my experience over these 60 years in Texas, growing up very largely as a product of our public institutions, and something I think we ought to consider before we try to say to everyone, don't consider diversity, suffocate any DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. Uh, that you're involved with. I, I just want us to think about it a little more before we get there. And so similar things are happening in other states. Uh, I'm not trying to pick on Texas. Uh, this is just the one where I live and the one where I grew up and the one where I've been a part of the public institutions. And, you know, similar things are happening in Florida and North Carolina or one of the Carolinas anyway. And governors in other states are are demanding from their um, administrations in their public schools and their public universities, how much money is being spent on diversity and inclusion uh, in your administration and so on. And so there's a really negative environment <laughs> about diversity, equity, and inclusion right now. And so, and, and that statement in the Tribune is pretty accurate. Policies about diversity and equity and inclusion are policies that support groups, and I'm quoting from the Tribune right now, the Texas Tribune, policies that support groups who have been historically underrepresented or discriminated against. And it is saying historically underrepresented or discriminated against one way or another. And so in in those kinds of policies being uh, forbidden, so so to speak, proscribed at least, uh, in Texas are, you know, a concern to me. Why would that be? So let me go back. 
let me talk about my childhood. Uh, so it all began in a hospital in, Her- in, in, in Fort Worth, Texas. Actually, I was born in Harris Hospital, but you don't care, and it doesn't affect today's story. Uh, th- my culture shaped me. This is the truth of every human being, so there's nothing about that where I'm blaming the culture. This is just who we are. We are, we are a product of our cultures. And the culture that shaped me included very significantly, and I'll only be ideological here for a moment, or, you know, largely abstract here, but radical individualism in the strongest possible form. I, I mean, I, by, the, by the time I was in third or fourth grade, I was, I was wearing the patriotic garb and, you know, participating in the July 4th parade, and I won the contest for the most patriotic bike in the July 4th parade in Arlington, which was the largest, I just want to say, somebody give me some pat on the back here, the largest patriotic parade on July 4th in the state of Texas at the time in the city of Arlington. And I won first place for most patriotic bicycle decorations. And I was dressed up like uh, Uncle Sam, you know. Oh, we're sort of Uncle Sam and sort of Abraham Lincoln. I thought I was Abraham Lincoln, but I realize now I was Uncle Sam. You don't care. On, on we go. So the point is, I, I believed in radical individualism. And I, I wouldn't have called it that. I didn't know what it was called. But, you know, liberty meant the individual gets to choose whatever they want to do. And what you want to do is all that matters. And that's what red, white, and blue was all about. And for me, that was cemented in the way I saw the most important people in my life live. Uh, My dad, I believed in self-help. You know, you, you get yourself out of poverty. Uh, My dad's legacy said that can happen. He worked hard. He worked multiple jobs. I'm talking two or three jobs at a time to get our entire family out of poverty. And he was the linchpin that changed the future of our family. I'm super grateful for him. Uh, and, I, and so that cemented in my mind the idea that everybody talks about. Well, it's a land of opportunity, and if you just work hard enough, you can absolutely succeed. And if you're in poverty, well, you're just not working hard enough. Give it a little more effort. And I had some early alerts. Remember I said anomalies are the things that changed my mind about these things over the last couple of decades. I had early alerts when I was a child that should have, you know, that could have given me enough equipment, enough information that I could have thought differently about a few things. Now, I'm not saying I'm wrong about working hard. Work hard and do the best you can and so on. But does that guarantee you get out of poverty? Well, you know, we when I was a, a little child, I don't know how old, two, three, four, five years old, I remember the trip. I remember experiences from it, including thinking I was going to drown when we were crossing the Rio Grande in our car, driving across the Rio Grande, not on a bridge, just driving across the Rio Grande. These are Texas rivers. You can do that in most Texas rivers. Anyway, the point is, uh, we, we took this trip with a church group, I think it was. It was a church group. We, and we went to serve this uh, church on the other side of the Rio Grande, down in the down south of the, the, it was in the Chihuahuan Desert, I think. And so we crossed the, the Rio Grande, went to this church, and we had a, a meal together and had some whatever, I don't know. The, the, the adults all did what the adults did. And I saw kids, you know, behind the church after we were through with our event, and they threw all the stuff out. I saw kids leaving the church and going out behind the church building and picking through the trash and getting all the leftovers that were down there. And these were kids that we'd just been in the building with. And there's, there is, it didn't dawn on me that this was the case. I wouldn't have known. I mean, I was a little preschool kid. But I remember it, and I could have remembered it at any point in my life. But I, I would have known if I had thought through it then that they didn't have the same opportunities 
that I had. Why are they picking through the trash? Because they don't have the same opportunities that I have. And there's, there, there's not one of those kids who could have gotten enough jobs to work himself out of poverty in that context because we are uh, not only a product of our culture but also blessed or cursed by our context, our economic context and all those other things that are around us. It's a part of being human that that's the case. So anyway, as I grew older, there was a lot of reinforcement of my confidence in the absolute truth behind radical individualism and the power that it provides for people to overcome anything if they can just act freely. Uh, and that was in the, and I'm, I, I say that with a little snark because I mean it with a little snark. It, it's true in a lot of ways, but it's also absurdly untrue in some obvious ways. And I just denied those in some cases when I shouldn't have. Uh, I did have a lot of cultural reinforcement for it. I went to public schools uh, my entire life, first through 12th grade. I, we didn't, uh, kindergarten wasn't required uh, where I was, uh, where I was of kindergarten age. And to be fair, I skipped the last six weeks of uh, first grade in public school. I'm just full disclosure, probably should have all my degrees taken away from me. I had broke, I broke both of my arms before the end of that year, and so I missed them. Hey, I'm 60. I'm telling my kids stories. There you go. So I got, I got to stay home. That was okay with me. But aside from that, I went through all 12 years of public school in Texas public schools, and I loved it, and I think I got a great education. No complaints whatsoever. I absolutely love it. But I do want to make this point that as I was going through those schools, I, that's where I learn in the schools from the teachers. That's where I learned the idea of the Civil War as the lost cause, uh, not uh, a, a war about slavery, but the lost cause of the South trying to defend states' rights and the nobility of the Southern cause and so on like that. That's, I learned that in my public school. I could name a couple of the teachers. I won't because I have great respect for them. I don't think they would teach this today. And I'm not even sure they're involved in teaching anymore. And I, I'm so grateful for so many of the things that I did learn from them. But this was the public school environment when I was growing up in Texas, that uh, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. The Civil War was a dignified battle on the, on, the, uh, on the part of the South to protect states' rights. And, you know, when people say that to me today, I, I will say to them, well, yeah, they were arguing in favor of states' rights. That's why they chose the idea of confederacy over federalism. I, of course, that's what they were doing. But what is it that brought the issue of states' rights to the fore for those states so that they wanted to have those rights. And I'm not going to have that argument with you right now, but I, I just want to make the point that this is, this is the reason that people, that, that this cause, this way of describing the Civil War is one of the principal reasons that people in the South and including us, a lot of us, are reluctant to think appropriately or honestly or openly about many of the problems that uh, should attend our thinking about the Civil War and the choices that we were making during the Civil War. And I say we, meaning Texans. Uh, I believe we're part of this state's history. It's okay to be that. Uh, you know, and, and in the same sense, by the way, uh, that idea that states' rights are more important than slavery, in, in exactly that same way where I grew up and in the way I grew up, right here in the heart of Texas, you know, in North Texas, the freedom, and this, look, I, this isn't just me. 
I'm not, I'm not describing something that's rare here. This is just Texas. The freedom when I was growing up in, and when I was in school, the freedom to tell a racist joke was way more important than the feelings of someone who might be offended by that racist joke. Now, part of that is there was nobody in our context who was going to hear it who would be offended. Uh, we didn't share space with a lot of diversity. That just didn't happen. So most of the time, nobody ever heard those jokes. Uh, and and by the way, uh, just backing up a tiny bit here, if you say, well, that's, you know, that, that makes sense to me. People ought to, you know, we used to be able to tell jokes and people weren't constantly offended by it. It's the same way people have a tendency to call Gen Z years snowflakes or sometimes even millennial snowflakes or to disdain any context where political correct, using the term political correctness when we're told we can't use certain terms or shouldn't tell certain kinds of jokes or give you know, a certain designation to a people group. Oh, well, that's just a bunch of political correctness. Well, you know, political correctness is just another way of saying, why don't you take into consideration how that affects someone else before you say it? And that's not such a terrible thing to do. But I didn't grow up in that environment. I grew up in a Texas environment where it was uh, okay to use all the slurs, tell all the jokes, and allow the people that were hurt by it just to get over it in their own time, in their own way, uh, because that's their problem, because these are just jokes that reflect reality, which, by the way, reveals its own problem with those jokes. So, I, you know, that's how I grew up. I'm just telling you that's how I grew up. Half the jokes I know from childhood are racist jokes. And I'm embarrassed by that. I'm ashamed of it. I'm crying now because I, I wish that weren't the case, that I hadn't grown up being willing to repeat those things. But I did not process how bad they were, and I, I regret that. I wish somebody had said to me earlier when I was younger, hey, uh, you know what? That's not a good idea. That's not, that's not the way to think of or talk about other people. And as I grew older, okay, so this is my, that's my childhood, my early childhood, and, and as, I grow, as I grew older, things, uh, you know, things happened that, that alerted me that something was wrong, these anomalies. So for instance, as a teenager, I, I would go up to Hammond and Nia. I was a part of a, a very strongly legalistic, hyper-conservative, fundamentalist movement during that time. And some really fine people who I still love were a part of that movement, and, uh, and they've gone through a lot of the things I've gone through in maturing out of it in some ways, and others have stayed right in the middle of it. So I'm not, I'm not complaining about it overall. But a part, you know, a part of that was just disturbingly, um, I could say misogynistic if I just wanted to pull out the, the language for it, uh, but disturbingly that, disturbingly racist, and, uh, and not really open to any consideration of any other way of thinking about it. And so I remember going to Hammond, Indiana and thinking to myself, I'm not a racist. I'm not, I, I don't have any problems with the other gender, you know, whatever that other gender is. Uh, I'm okay with all that. You know, it's, it's all good. I thought I was fine. And then I remember in Hammond, Indiana, we were at this youth conference or a pastor's conference. Can't remember which one. I went to both every year for the three years that I was in high school. But I remember Jack Hiles 
making the announcements. I mean, proud of this. And the entire church and then all the people who were there celebrating that he selected the dresses and the shoes that the women wore who were working for his church during that pastor's conference. And he would bring out a young woman on the stage and show all the pastors how they should select the clothes that the women who are going to represent them would wear. And it, even then, you know, this, this poor woman standing on the stage, a young girl, really, you know, like an 18 or 20-year-old, standing on the stage and being pointed at as an object that ought to be, you know, this is modest and this is why it's so attractive and this is what the shoes ought to be like. And it was just creepy. And even then, even then, I remember my feelings about it. I knew something was off about that, but I didn't act on it. I just let it go. Eh, it's an anomaly. You let it go. There was objectification. I didn't know the words then. There was subject. I did. I knew the words. I didn't know how to apply them properly. I was a debater, so I loved all those kinds of words. There was objectification, subjugation, power imbalance, all those things that are terrible. And honestly, if, I, if, I, if I'd just been honest with myself, I would have run screaming from the room and said, this is not what Christianity's about. This is not what I want to be about. But I wasn't. And, uh, you know, there I sat. And then I went to Baylor, and another anomaly happened. As an undergrad at Baylor, I took Russian for three years uh, in the middle of one of those years of taking Russian. I don't remember which. This guy was in a couple of years of those classes with me. Uh, actually, I took two years for credit. The third year I just took uh, sitting in. Uh, but in the, I probably the second year, because I knew this guy really well. But I, I realized that I really liked this guy. And I knew from the first year that I was with him, from the beginning when I met him, that he was from Iran. And I mean literally from Iran, like an Iranian citizen taking classes at Baylor with us. Now, you, you, you're not thinking what this means because I was taking classes at Baylor in 1981 to 1985. So we're talking just after the Shah had been uh, killed and the, prison, you know, the hostages had been taken and kept in, uh, you know, whatever. And so it was just, a, it was the Iranians were the enemy. You know, I mean, they were they were almost as bad as the Soviets. It, it's, uh, you know, it was that kind of world. And then there was this Iranian friend that I had in class. I can't even remember his name now. And uh, we had a great conversation almost every day in class, and he was smart, and he was uh, friendly, and he wasn't putting on a show. He cared about, and we had open conversations about what was actually going on in his country, and he would try to say, well, you know, not everybody there is a, a radical who's trying to, you know, reject America. And in fact, we have a, a lot of people who love America and Iran and so on. And it really shook my understanding of my thinking about foreigners at that time. I'm embarrassed that I would already be in college as I look back on it and have had such a small view of people that I would be able to trust in the world. And he was an anomaly. And that one helped. That one helped. From that point forward, I would not simply categorize a person because of their nationality or politic or, or even their religion. I wouldn't just say, oh, yeah, you can trust that kind of person. You can't trust that. That did help. But it was still just an anomaly to tuck into the hat. And then uh, later, I came to Criswell College. I was working on my MDiv. And I've mentioned this one in a, in a previous episode a good while back, but I, we were having a pre-class discussion. I'll be fairly brief about it. We were having a pre-class discussion uh, among the students. The professor wasn't in there yet about racism, and I said something or another ignorant, which is the only thing I could have said about it at the time. And uh, my fellow student, who was an African-American, uh, just said to me, basically, you don't really even know what systemic racism is, do you? 
And I said, oh, of course I do. I understand why, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea what it was. I knew I had no idea what it was. I wouldn't admit it to him, but I had no idea what it was. And I had to start thinking differently about what was going on. What are you talking about? And he started explaining it to other people in the class. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I acknowledge that and that and that. But I mean, and then I realized something was going on that I was ignoring because I understood all the things he was talking about but I hadn't applied them to the way I thought about that problem. And I, I, I held that for way too long. And when I finally went to uh, my PhD program at UTA, I told you, product of the public institutions in Texas, you know, I went to the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, we had a course on, it was actually a course on cultural history. It was largely about multiculturalism which is a, you know, a touchy subject and it can go way off the hinges and you can do all kinds of crazy things in a multiculturalist environment where you're thinking along those lines. I get all that. We can have that debate another day. But you know what? So in this one particular class, this one particular seminar that I was in, and we all did present on the different readings that we were doing and so on. So it was more of a seminar format. And, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, we had a conversation, for instance, when in the classroom, uh, people were trying to say there was no there was no real difference between the genders, no real difference whatsoever. And, and I remember saying, you know, I understand uh, the prejudices that exist against this and that, uh, you know, against women in society because of this and that. I, I think those are there, and you have a legitimate argument to make. But saying there's no difference between men and women doesn't make any sense to me. Even just, and I, I remember saying this in the class, even just, and I would, I, would, I would be willing to say this today, although I would be kinder about how I said it today. I'm not going to say it unkindly now. I'm just making the point. My response was to say to them, you know, look, I, I get the point that you're making, but even if I were a naturalist, even if I didn't believe in it for any other reason, just the fact that women are able to bear children means that they have different hormones and different chemicals working in their body than men have who produce other things in their body. And therefore, it wouldn't surprise me that there are some intrinsic or some significant distinctions between men and women that go beyond simply saying that uh, one of them looks this way and one of them looks that way. I, I just think that would be there. You would have thought I threw a hand grenade into the room. I'm saying that to make the point that I, I, I'm, I, I still have a traditional understanding of the differences between people. I understand those kinds of things. But on the other hand, I remember reading a book, a particular book by Ramon Gutierrez. It's, I don't think it's uh, regarded as that significant a book today because it took forever for me just to find the title again uh, today, but I did find it. And it, and it did have an influence on me. And, I, and I, again, I, I don't give any credence to it. I'm not recommending it or not, or not recommending it. I'm not doing either. I'm just, it's just a book I read. And it did have an impact on me because it, it was about the, the Spanish conquest of New Mexico, basically, the conquistadors and after, and how the Catholic Church uh, influenced that and how religion influenced that and how it sort of replaced the religion of the Native Americans who were there before. And in reading that book, it, was, it, it, didn't, sh it didn't shade anything in favor of either group. Neither group looked good. Uh, it was, you know, perfectly frank about the very harsh practices of the Native Americans who were there before. And it was very frank about the very harsh practices of the Spanish who came in afterwards. So no compliments were given to either group at any time, if I remember the book correctly. But reading it made me realize <clears throat> what, it, what, what I had completely ignored 
a perspective about what had happened to Native Americans that went beyond mine, just saying, you know, that it's our land now. We took it, and who cares? Reading that book made me, and not, and again, not really in a sympathetic way as a book, but just reading the stories made me go, well, those were people, and, and look what happened. And, you know, does it make me personally guilty for what happened? I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but I became sympathetic with people that I'd not even recognized before or cared about what they'd gone through. And that, that was an anomaly for me. That disturbed me that it took me that long to get there. Another seminar I was sitting in, we had a German student, literally a student from Germany, who, uh, you know, participated in the seminar, and he was uh, commenting on his view of his culture, because we were talking first about how you process your own standing in your own culture. And he said, I, I don't know. I, it's very difficult for me to process how to, how to, how to think of myself when I tell people I'm from Germany. Because on the one hand, I am so proud of Beethoven and, and Bach and the history that we've given to the world, that's the cultural you know, beauty that we've given to the world that's, that's so profound, and all of us know about this. And then he said, and then, and then I have the Holocaust. And that was us, you know, and I'm, I, don't, I don't even know how to face that and know which of those I'm supposed to hold in a moment. And, and, it, and it did make me realize that it would be possible to be proud to be an American, which I am, and aware of the faults and improvements which we have to make. That it's, that it's, for instance, possible to be grateful for our founding fathers and recognize the hypocrisy in their embrace of equality on one side while excluding blacks and women from being included as full human beings on the other side. And, and by the way, this is a point made in a Netflix documentary, which you can watch or not watch. I'm not recommending it or not recommending it either. I, I'm going to learn how to say that someday. It's called Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. And Jeffrey Robinson, this attorney uh, that deals with race, race law and civil rights and things, uh, is the one who presents it. But one comment that he made I thought was really interesting in the documentary where uh, he was talking about how, uh, you know, people want uh, the Confederate heroes to be pulled down from their statues and all that, that kind of stuff. And people say, well, what are we supposed to pull down uh, statues of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson too because they had slaves? And he said, well, no, and he said it so, I, I was surprised at his answer, but his answer was, well, no, uh, and you say, well, why would you leave a statue up for them? And he said, well, because maybe they're the fathers of the country, and it was interesting to hear somebody who is so adamant about the racism built into American society, this is him, I'm describing him, be also so clearly adamant about saying, but we can also be really grateful that the founding fathers of this country who had slaves founded this country. Now, I'm not saying that he would say it exactly the way I just said it. It's just that point that there is complexity in our relationship with our culture. And finally coming to realize that uh, had an impact on me and has had an impact on me to this day. Um, there is, uh, you know, with that said, a much later realization that came to me at least much greater uh, willingness to extend the obvious truth of this, um, this, is that it's possible to be grateful for faith. 
you know, my faith has been central to my life since I was 16 years old. I mean, I became a Christian when I was nine, but at 16, I, I gave my life to ministry. I'm committed to serving as a Christian leader in, in any way, and, and that means being a Christian servant. So ministry is what I'm about. And so for me, later realizing that it would be possible to be grateful for my faith, meaning literally the doctrines of my faith and the, the things that have been taught about my faith, the, the objective parts of my faith, but also the subjective part, that I have faith, that I get to walk in that faith. It would be possible to be grateful for that and also see the faults in the way we've applied it, in the subjective part of it, yeah, my experience of it, but also in the ways we've interpreted the objective parts of it. Uh, and, and, and by the way, as an example of this, I have a social media follower, and, and I, have, I, have, uh, I don't know how many followers, so whoever it is, a social media follower who, who absolutely cannot see past the end of his own nose on his definition of holiness. Uh, w- one of the posts that he put out not too long ago, and if you're this person, you need to hear this because this is, not a, this is really not okay. He said, you know, he'd had three dates in one week with three Christian women, and at the, by the end of every date had had to cast a demon out of each of them. Uh, there, you know, something's missing there. Something's wrong there if you think that everyone who doesn't measure up to the exact standards that you have needs a demon cast out of them. And, and when, uh, and, and, and again, he wrote about this on social media, so I'm not, I'm not talking about something private here, and I don't, I don't even think he knows who I am. Uh, but, uh, you know, his response to criticism in the comments in the social media was basically, hey, the prophetic gift shouldn't be rejected. And so, you know, when I've spoken these things, it's because they need to be heard. Th- that inability to recognize that, yes, the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, the Holy Spirit's omniscient. The Holy Spirit is able to communicate perfectly clearly. My confidence in the Holy Spirit is not the problem. It's my confidence in me that should be a problem. I should be willing to doubt myself, and we should all be willing to doubt ourselves. And that means that I can look at faith in the way we've applied it, in the way we've practiced it, without questioning the truth of Christianity whatsoever as an absolute truth. And I can say, wow, you know, I think we've gotten some of this wrong. That realization coming to me uh, during this time that I'm talking about, it was humbling, you know, and it's, uh, and it's why a lot of people go through a deconstruction, they call it, because they want to eliminate those things they know are wrong, but they think have been built into their Christianity, and maybe it has been built into the way Christianity has been given to them, and a lot of people never find their way to get back to the faith without that baggage. Uh, so I'm I, I'm grateful that I was allowed to to see that the faith can be questioned without questioning the faith. <laughs> if you get what I'm getting at, and so you know, and some of these things happened in churches in the 1990s. I would go up. Uh, north of Memphis in this uh, highway that's up there, there were, uh, I don't know why, a string of churches. I kind of do. It was sort of a a domino uh, effect. Uh, I would preach in one church, and the next year I'd go back and preach in another church and so on. Uh, This series of revivals I did up there, and I I preached in a church where, uh, this is the 1990s, they would not baptize uh, a black person. They would not baptize a black person in their church. And later, that church adopted a policy where they would be willing to baptize them, but they wouldn't let them join. And their argument was, hey, they'd rather be a part of their own kind of church anyway, be with their own kind, or be where they're more comfortable. 
So, man, I preached a sermon on it, you know, and I mean, I preached the daylights out of that sermon <laughs> on the cross and the equality we have at the cross, and uh, that didn't make any sense for us even to say, yeah, I think uh, Christ will accept them, but probably not us. You know, we're probably not willing to accept them. So I preached the daylights out of that sermon. And, of course, I never went back to that church, <laughs> was never invited back. That's a reality in our, that's a reality in our world. And if you say, well, that was the 1990s, that's 30 years ago. Yeah, it was only 30 years ago. We're not talking the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. We're not talking the 1890s during Jim Crow. We're not talking, uh, or during Reconstruction, and we're not talking pre-Civil War while there's slavery. We're talking about an our culture. And you think all those people have just gone away or their attitudes have all just changed? It's just not the case. It was in the 2000s in the state of Texas where I was preaching when a pastor's wife shared her experience. And I could see that there was some racism in this church. A lot of times I discover racism in churches when I've been there for a little while and they begin to trust me and I think I'm trustworthy. But they also begin to see me as just one of them. And then they tell the racist joke, you know. And that's when they learn that they can't trust me (laughs) is when they tell that joke. Uh, and I remember a pastor's wife sharing her experience. Uh, hey, we, we had these visitors in the church. Here's the visitor card. I'm going to go get in the car with these other two ladies from the church, and we're going to go make a visit. Here's where we're going to go visit. Well, we're, why would we go there? That's, don't you know, that's the black part of town. Well, they visited the church. We want to go visit them. No, 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 we don't go visit there. That's that, that, they wouldn't be at home in our church anyway. This was in the 2000s in Texas that I'm talking about. So uh, those experiences in churches make me say, yeah, I, I, am, I am a Christian. I am committed to ministry. I am committed to serving the church. But there are a lot of things wrong with the way we practice our faith, and we ought to be willing to confront those things and deal with them. E- even as a, a president at Criswell, you know, my experiences have helped me learn about this in some ways. So that in, you know, we're, we're in old East Dallas. There's a huge diversity here. And we have a diversity in our student population. That's not been difficult for, to, for us to obtain in a lot of ways. But I realized, you know, becoming a leader in, in, the, in, the, in the administration that our faculty and staff were almost uniformly white. And, and among our faculty, uniformly white male. Uh, and it was, it was like, we need to do something different about this. And you know what happened a few years ago? I had an opportunity to call a vice president, and we had a guy that was a perfect candidate, by far the most qualified candidate anyway, and he had double minority status. He was Hispanic, and he has another minority status also. And as a Hispanic, and it, it has to do with, uh, his, with an injury that he had when he was younger. And so, but as a Hispanic, what I found is just staggering that over the past three years, it's remarkable how diversified our staff has become because we hired one person who brought diversity to the table of leadership in our institution. And now, by the way, how much more diversified our student population has become in ways I didn't even realize needed to happen because we have people who understand what their experiences have been and can help them navigate things I've never even thought about having to navigate. This is just the reality of what happens when you actually have some diversity. A few years ago, we didn't have anyone on our staff who could speak Spanish. I'm in East Dallas. Now, we have plenty of staff who speak Spanish as their primary language. Uh, I am blessed and encouraged by what that little bit of effort at diversity has done for us. That's a change for us. 
And, you know, another anomaly that broke me down uh, a few years ago was, along with so many others, and I'm so embarrassed it took this long for this to affect me, uh, when I watched the murder of George Floyd. I, I was stunned, but I was more stunned. I, I, I was more disturbed when I heard people dismissing it as unimportant. And I realized something was wrong with my world with the people I identified with. They were able to wave a hand at the completely senseless killing of a human being. And then I got the pushback from that, from me saying they were waving a hand at it. Well, he deserved it, as if executions are permissible by the police, that it was an anomaly, as if there weren't three other police standing there when it was happening, or as if... Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, Jordan Edwards, Ahmaud Arbery, Michael Brown, Tony McDade, Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, Botham John, Tamir Rice, Tatiana Jefferson, or Tyree Nichols just recently didn't happen also. That the rest of society shouldn't be, this is the, that pushback that I got. I said, you know, they're just willing to wave a hand at it. The other waving of the hand was to say, well, the rest of society shouldn't be held captive to the prejudices of a few. Well, I understand that. So here's the thing. As, I, as, I, as all of these things happened, over the last 10 years, my heart has changed, and my understanding of how much more we should know has also changed. And I would love to talk about the details of what, what's happening in Texas with the diversity, uh, equity, inclusion initiatives, and trying to suffocate that language and so on like that. Let me just get to the, let me just cut to the chase, okay? As a 60-year-old product of our state's institutions, that's me, which I revere in many, many ways. Again, I am so grateful for what I've been given. And I have such a debt to them. But as a 60-year-old, looking back and wishing I'd been aware of many of these things decades earlier in my life, you can imagine my dismay that we may now feel like it's more important not to allow a free exchange of ideas that we were that were excluded from me when I was growing up. And, and, and again, to put it in the simplest possible form that I can come up to at this moment, in Texas, which I'm proud to be a Texan, we are famous for the lynchings that happened here for the marked racial division in our largest cities, for the strategies we used to keep from addressing racial divide, the racial divide during the civil rights movement, sweeping the rest of the country. Read the accommodation. You'll know what I'm talking about. We're even famous for the assassination of a civil rights-minded president, and don't think people don't associate that. That is how they think of it. And we're famous. Our good, old, our good old boys club is as prominent and tight-knit as any in the country. So let's not be famous for blocking conversations about real issues in history, from slavery to Jim Crow or about ways we can just do better. Perhaps it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we were to move the ball forward regarding open doors for those we used to exclude or on speaking as openly and honestly about the shameful parts of our past as we do continue to speak 
about the proud and amazing parts of our history because all of it is part of who we are and all of it is part of what God can use to make us what we ought to be. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.